Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. A year ago November, the New York City Department of Correction, as The Village Voice reported, announced it was closing its Transgender Housing Unit, or THU. The unit offers transgender women the alternative of being housed separately from the men in jail. Local LGBTQ advocates criticized the move for eliminating an important, though imperfect, housing alternative for trans women and placing them at increased risk of sexual assault and harassment. Today, the THU is still operating, but advocates are still concerned about the department's inability to keep transgender inmates safe. According to Mike Kinka, director of the Prisoner Justice Project of the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, quote, trans and gender nonconforming people are being harassed, denied gender-affirming clothing and products, placed in de facto isolation, and in situations where they are knowingly at risk of sexual violence. This is all steeped in genuinely seeing trans and gender nonconforming people as full people. Prisoners in Florida have issued a call for a statewide prison work strike set for Martin Luther King Day next month. They're calling their mobilization Operation Push. This is an excerpt from their statement. Sending out an SOS to all parties concerned. We are currently forming a network agency within the DOC. We are asking all prisoners within the Department of Corrections to take a stand by laying down starting January 15, 2018, until the injustice we see facing prisoners within the Florida system is resolved. We're calling on all organized groups as well as religious systems to come together on the same page. We will be taking a stand for, one, payment for our labor rather than the current slave arrangement, two, ending outrageous canteen prices, and three, reintroducing parole incentives to lifers and those with Buck Rogers dates. Along with these primary demands, we are also expressing our support for the following goals. Stop the overcrowding and acts of brutality committed by officers throughout the FDOC, which have resulted in the highest death rates in prison history. Expose the environmental conditions we face, including extreme temperatures, mold, contaminated water, and being placed next to toxic sites such as landfills, military bases, and phosphate mines, including a proposed mine which would surround the Reception and Medical Center prison in Lake Butler. Honor the moratorium on state executions, as a court ordered the state to do, without the legal loophole now being used to kill prisoners on death row. And restore voting rights as a basic human right to all, not a privilege, regardless of criminal convictions. We'll keep you updated on Operation Push as it unfolds. People in Louisville with mental illness or addiction have a new alternative to jail or a hospital. That alternative is called the Living Room Program. Similar programs are working well in other states. The Living Room is a space open around the clock every day in the basement of a building that houses the nonprofit mental health organization Centerstone, which is operating the program. Funded in part by taxes, the program expects to serve about 24 people a day. The Living Room staff is composed of peer specialists who are extensively trained people recovering from mental illness or substance abuse problems. The Living Room is intended to be a tranquil, quiet, non-clinical space that offers access to counselors and housing, in addition to health care and mental health aid. Participation is voluntary, so people can leave if they wish, and they can stay up to 23 hours. In this week's episode, we hear from Valerie Buford, the sister of Leon Benson, a prisoner here in Indiana. Valerie talks about the circumstances that led to Leon being imprisoned on a murder charge since 1998. 
Through her story, you can hear how difficult it is to navigate the legal system, especially with few financial resources. Valerie is still working to get Leon out, to get evidence heard in federal court, and to share Leon's story along the way. Here she is. My name is Valerie Buford. I'm the sister of Leon Benson. He's currently incarcerated in Pillison Correctional Facility. He's been locked up since August the 14th. Uh, 1998. He's currently serving a 60-year sentence. I want to talk about how he got arrested. August the 14th of 1998, Leon was standing on a corner drinking with some friends, and he got arrested for drinking. I think he was on probation at the time or whatever the case may be, and they arrested him. And he was intoxicated at the time of the arrest. And when he finally awake from the liquor that he was drinking, he found himself being questioned by Detective Alan Jones. Not a detective anymore. He got fired back in 2013 as being reckless with the system. So, anyways, uh, Leon, he awakes and he got, he was being questioned about a murder that took place six days prior uh, to his arrest. And Leon remembers, you know, a shooting happened in the area that he hangs out at. And um, he, you know, he remember someone had got shot, but he he didn't shoot the person. So um, so he kind of admit, like, you know, he was in the area or he was familiar about something that happened in the area where he lived. And so after that, he they said that we have someone said that you did it, you know, and he was like, what? You know, this got to be a joke. You know, basically, this this not that's this not real. You know, like I didn't kill anybody. So, a newspaper lady she um, came forth and said that you know, basically, looking through a, a photo array, she was looking through. She didn't. They didn't do a live lineup, and basically, she said that he was the guy. During that time, you also had the uh, Kari Fullerton that voluntarily came to um, talk to the same detective, which was Ellen Jones, and this other eyewitness, which name was the uh, Kari Fullerton that lived in the area, said that he witnessed this murder, and the guy he picked out was Joseph Webb. Basically, the state and also the Kari, the other eyewitness, their description was the same, same skin complexion and everything. But the Kari had like more kind of like information, more information like he, you know, can describe what kind of gun it was. And ironically, the gun that he described, the victim got killed with that same kind of gun. So when Leon got arrested, he didn't have, um, oh, no, clothing that might match 
or even his skin tone didn't even match because Leon is not dark-complected, but he is African-American, but he's not dark-skinned. He is light-complected. So they did arrest him. He didn't have a gun in his possession. So even if he got charged with a gun, but they never had any other connection of Leon committing this murder that he's serving 50 years for. So, you know, I'm very appalled by someone can get 60 years for really no evidence, really, you know, and how the state didn't even, they knew that it was another eyewitness, but they didn't call this eyewitness for. They just, you know, anything that favors their side came forth, but really no one came forth for Leon. The first trial was a mistrial because they really didn't have too much of anything. I know that the eyewitness was mentioned in that first trial, but why he wasn't called, I don't know why. I thought maybe that was protocol for if you was an eyewitness of a murder that you would be subpoenaed to court or you would know something. A trial is going on and someone is about to be convicted. Is this a man of something of that nature? I thought maybe the eyewitness would be notified. But as years went by, you know, Leon got, he ended up getting convicted in July of 1999. 60 years is what they have given him. So as years went by, we, you know, we looked and we searched for this eyewitness. And, you know, as we searched for him, we finally found a a relative of his. At that point in 2006, his family member had let us know that, you know, the Kari Fullerton, the eyewitness, was now in a coma. So we kind of like, oh, wow, so the only person that can say, you know, who actually saw this and witnessed this is now in a coma. So, you know, we just kept trying, um, you know, going forth. Uh, Leon, he filed a, a appeal that the appeal was denied. That was in 2002. But in 2009, he had withdrawal from his PCR. And... Then, like, three years later, in 2012, it was filed again, and he finally went to court in 2014 and also 2015. And at the time, let's say, like, 2013, I uh, personally met this eyewitness. Thank God this happened. Um, He was in a coma for some years. He had gotten into a bad car accident in 2006, and when he awaked from his coma, he was going through rehabilitation, and part of his therapy was to write things he could remember. And one thing that stuck on his mind was this murder that he witnessed. I talked to him, and this is what he tells me. He said he couldn't rest. He said, I was asleep for years, and now I cannot even go to sleep. And he reached out to Leon, 
I guess he did his investigation. He's like, okay, well, I, you know, someone else locked up for something. I know that this person didn't do because I witnessed who done this crime, you know. So he he didn't get no rest until he reached out to Leon, and he reached out to Leon in, like, the end of 2009. And so, like I said, like three years later, you know, we um, – I got funds together to hire an attorney, and um, the attorney, Eric, he he took on the case. He finally filed in, I think, 2014. He took on the case, though, like in 2013, and we went to court like a year and a half later, close to two years. And after the PCR hearing in 2014 and 15 was the last court hearing of July. After that hearing, it was like it took them a while to come up with a decision, but when they finally came up with the decision, it was like in April 1st is when I got the news that it was denied. So we filed an appeal, and Eric, he couldn't take on the the appeal on that. He He kind of got a little bit too busy. So we um, end up hiring another attorney. His name is Ross Thomas. He's up out in Indianapolis, and I heard some good things about him. So we hired him, and that's another $15,000. Eric was $15,000, and then we got uh, Ross Thomas, which is another $15,000. So he filed the appeal, and the appeal was just recently denied this year, and he did a, a rehearing of the decision, and they denied that again just last month on the 22nd of November. So, like, right now, we in a stage of, like, I get it, we get it. It's just like we just don't, we're not getting justice, you know, through the state. You know, it seemed like the state don't want to admit their their wrong doing. They don't want to admit to what they made a mistake of. You know, I don't know, was it a mistake or was it purposely done? I just really don't know. It's just the time that we're living in. And it's just so hard for African-American men, period. You know, so it, it's just kind of hard to say is if they don't want to own up to their mistake or they just don't want to fix the mistake. So our next step is going to the federal court. Once a case reached to that level, uh, usually someone that's innocent in prison, they basically, federal courts look at the facts. They don't look at the if, the the all this make-believe and all the garbage. They don't look at that. Uh, they look at the facts. The facts in the law is on Leon's side. As we, as we speak now, but it's just the state don't want to honor the law, you know. So you, can, you can't make or you cannot force the state to abide by the law. That's one thing you cannot do. So... The only the only thing that we can do is just keep on fighting. You know, um, I know 
like even in the course of trying to get support for Leon as he goes to court so people can see the eyewitness, testify, see the expert eyewitness, which was uh, Dr. Loftus out of uh, Seattle, Washington. He's been a, a professor for about 40 years now, and he he's like the expert eyewitness. So he, he done this scientifically proven, like, how a person looks so far away to overrule the statement that got Leon 60 years in prison because the newspaper lady, she was, like, 50 yards away. That's, like, half of a football field away from the crime scene. And it was, like, 3.45 a.m. in the morning. And... Basically, the expert eyewitness, his testimony was basically saying that it's impossible for anyone to positively identify someone that far away with 20-20 vision. And to note that um, the lady, Christy Smith, the newspaper lady from Star uh, Newspaper uh, from Indiana, the deliverer, she was a, a delivery lady, she uh, didn't have 20-20 vision. Actually, she didn't even have on her glasses the morning thereof. But she somehow said that Leon's eyes stood out to her that far away in that time of the morning. So, again, I mean, the system is, is, is just, it's just corrupt, you know, so... Hopefully, you know, like I say, we get some justice. I uh, had a Facebook page, and I was inviting people to come to his court hearing, and Leon actually got punished, got through into solitary confinement because I posted event page and was inviting people to come to court and to support. And he got thrown into solitary confinement for 90 days. And, you know, um, the attorney affairs, they called me because I was blocked from JPay. That's a way of communicating with your loved ones through email or video, gram, or anything like, you know, that's a way of, a new way of communicating and I couldn't J-Pay him anymore. So I called J-Pay up. J-Pay said, well, hey, you have to call up to Pillarton Correctional Facility. Like, they blocked you. And I'm like, why would they block me? And I called there, and that's when, you know, I got the phone call. And they was like, well, we know what you guys up to and what y'all trying to do. And I make sure you, you, you'll never have contact with him anymore. And I was like, wow, what is, what kind of, what, what is this? So, you know, I, uh, reached out to the, um, ACLU, Kim Falk, um, he, um, uh, he took on the case because I said, this is ridiculous, you know? So, um, and he thought it was bizarre too, you know, like, what? You get punished? He get punished? Like, what, what is this? You know, so, fighting that case, and we end up winning it because, like I said, like, anything that's, like, federal, you get relief in that, 
you know. So even though, like, the, the prison did what they did, you know what I'm saying, but they was wrong. So they had to pay for their wrongdoing, you know. And that was, like, last year or whatever. We got rewarded last year. So I think getting rewarded, of, you know, a little something, of getting rewarded for that, I think it was like a little backlash on that, you know. So, cause, I mean, half of his appeal, his uh, PCR, it got denied. So with that being denied, you have to, I think you only have like 30 days after the case get denied to file appeal. If you don't file an appeal within that time frame, then you, it's history, you know. So it's, it's really like you got to be really, and then you have to have the money to do so. I mean, Leon could have went to court for it because basically a, a PCR is a post-conviction release hearing. And in that hearing, what you do is you, you bring forth every evidence, everything that you can prove your innocence. When you bring that forth and they don't honor it, if you don't do, like, hurry up and file an appeal, you lose everything you have. If you don't bring everything to the table, it's like you lose that too. And one thing that I thought was kind of strange was that they waited for the guy that we was looking for that didn't, you know, didn't go to trial or nothing like that was the eyewitness, the Carly Fullerton. The, they waited for him to be last to testify because, I mean, his PCR hearing court days, it was continuance, continuance, you know. It was a lot of continuance in that case. I thought, like, you know, hey, he showed up the first time that we had court. He showed up. So I thought maybe they should have him to testify, you know. But Dr. Loftus, he testified. His testimony was, uh, uh, it was really long, you know. So with his testimony being so long, they had made a continuance and a continuance, and it went up off into 2015. I have posts on Facebook that Neon was going to court. And I uh, became Facebook friends with the eyewitness. So, you know, a lot of people liking the status and sharing it, commenting and, you know, sending their prayers up and things of that nature. So I do have my phone number online as well. So he called me and he said, it's court Friday. That was July the 31st. Of 2015, he was like, it's court Friday. He called me up that Wednesday, and I said, yeah. I said, you coming? He was like, yeah, I'll be there. And I'm like, okay. And that was that. And so a day later, because that was that Wednesday when he called me, the next day the attorney called me. He was like, hey, Val, how is it going? And I'm like, uh, pretty good, whatever. He was like, well, you know, we have it court Friday, and Sorry to inform you, Val, that the Kari Fullerton will not be at court. And I said, wow, why is that? He said, well, I sent him off a subpoena and he never signed for it. And I tried calling him and he never answered the phone or never returned any of my messages. I, I guess he must have moved out of town or something. And I had to swallow that. 
because he had just called me, and if I didn't have a Facebook activated at the time, then this guy would never have known because I'm tagging everybody that lives in Indiana, and I'm tagging them in this post. You know, so it's just like if I if I never would attack him, he would never call me up to say, "Hey, court, you know, it's Friday." Leon was told that you know they couldn't find him, and you know the prosecutor was told, you know, we ain't putting no forth no effort. I mean, you know, the the system is what it is. So he came forth and he gave his testimony. So. I mean, I thought that would be enough right there because his testimony was the same testimony that he gave back in August of 1998, you know. I thought Leon was going to get out, but it's the state, they just don't, they don't want to do what's right. The state can play with anybody's life or just play with anybody. They, they, they just can. The state can do that, even if it's wrong, even if it's right. They don't care. Leon is, he's a leader in prison right now. He's a motivator, like speaker, like he's off into a lot of positive things in prison right now. So, like, he hasn't let this time really get the best of him. He's just moving forward. It's like he, he can't do nothing about what happened, you know, and why it happened. He's just looking forward to coming home, and he's just doing positive things. So, like, you can just reach out to him, like, through JK. His uh, DLC number is 9952256, and anyone can send an email, and Leon will respond. He's not, like, a victim. He's not playing a victim in this situation. He's a very strong person, you know. We are moving forward. We are moving forward. Like, we are moving forward. Leon is, you know, he feels as though he's living a vicarious life, you know, because it's caused by someone else's actions, and he, he wouldn't be locked up if that guy didn't kill someone that morning, you know. They wouldn't have locked him up, so... I know in 98, it was a lot of crimes and stuff like that was going on in 98. I think that was the highest of the crime rate. And I don't know, was, like I say, I don't really know uh, was the prosecutor, was they just like, you know, trying to hurry up, finish up with cases. But when you like got so much evidence, even even a crime stopper report. Now this, I, I didn't mention this, but it's a crime stopper report that indicated that the guy that actually committed the crime, as uh, the eyewitness has spoken to, said as well, it says it in a crime stopper report that Joseph Webster committed this crime. He used his girlfriend gun, in which it is a, I have the report from Natasha Shepard, which is the girlfriend, and she, you know, she was angry at him because she, he had took her gun and killed someone with her gun, you know. So she went out to the police station, like, the 21st of August of 98, saying that 
she had her her gun in the glove department. August the first, she put in a glove department, and on the uh, the eleventh, she realized that it was gone, and she don't know when her gun came up missing. She did that just in case that guy actually get arrested for that, you know, to cover her trail. I don't know. It's just so much to prove his innocence. So, like, I really don't know why injustice is so, so just, I mean, it's just everywhere, you know. So I don't know why people don't want to honor the truth. So I believe when things be exposed, I mean, the truth got to come out. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, truth never dies. Thanks to Valerie for talking with us. You can learn more about Leon's case at freeleonbenson.org. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kiteline.radio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.